This is Teach for All Talks, a conversation with global education thought leaders. Today's episode features Wendy Kopp in conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. Novogratz is the founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit that seeks to end poverty by investing in companies, leaders, and ideas. She is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Blue Sweater, Bridging the Gap Between Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World. So Jacqueline has an incredible story and history um, with Acumen. She's also, she's done several TED Talks and she's written a, at least one best-selling book called The Blue Sweater, um, among, among other things. Um, and as I've gotten to know a little bit more, I feel like I don't know nearly as much, but I've come to see that there are real similarities between kind of the journey and the work that, that she's been on and, and what we're doing here. So I'm really excited to dive in and, and explore some of that. Um, so to get us started, we want to know a little bit more, I think, about your journey in this. And I think it would be good to know what led you. I think you were working in banking straight out of college, something like that. And you just up and decided one day that you had to go to Rwanda. Um, what led That's you to... Best to do that, um, and, and I'm curious how, how that, you know, what you learned from the Rwandan experience, too. Um, thanks, Wendy. Bef before I start, though, um, not to start with the Mutual Admiration Society, but um, I do want to say that, you know, Wendy, like, I'm sure for all of you, is one of my true heroes um, of an incredible woman leader, an incredible leader, um, forget about gender. Uh, seriously, who has um, modeled what we try to do at Acumen, which is this idea of moral leadership. And, and we can talk about that later, but the grit and persistence that you have shown in building not only Teach for America, but now Teach for All, which makes me so excited, <laughs> uh, inspires me um, really deeply in all of us at Acumen. And uh, we also feel a real affinity to Teach for All um, in that uh, we have five Teach for India fellows who have been Acumen fellows. So there's real integration. I've spoken to them. Shahina has spoken to our guys and women. And um, so I get to see firsthand the work that you all are doing on the ground. So. And I should also say, I think some of you know that Kasaga, who's pursuing Teach for Uganda and is gaining a lot of great momentum, um, attributes so much of his own development to his experience at Acumen. So there's lots of, lots of. There's a lot of. Oh. <laughs> so um, deciding uh, to leave Wall Street and move to Rwanda, um, uh, it was it was fascinating because I actually was walking. Um, I mis, mis under, underestimated the walk, but um, when I first had my first job, it was I chose Manhattan Bank, um, two blocks away from here. So when I was walking down Broadway, uh, there were so many memories of those early days in banking, which I love. And it was a very heady time, early 1980s, which I hate to say out loud. <laughs> um, but uh, my job had me traveling all around the world. I went to 40 countries in three years, looking at the economic and political situation of those countries. Um, what I discovered in Brazil primarily was that the developing world was not the poor world, but was this place of incredible, thriving human beings that were trying to make change. The problem was we weren't lending to any of them. We were lending to a very, very small slice of the population who was mostly taking their money and putting it immediately into the Cayman Islands or some other offshore account. Mm. And meanwhile, the poor couldn't even feel comfortable walking into the doors of a bank. And so, I decided there had to be a better way and made a decision, first and foremost, that I wanted to follow Muhammad Yunus and what he was doing with Grameen. Um, this was pre-internet, and so it was really hard to, you'd have to write a letter, which sounds again so archaic. Always trying to explain <laughs> to people too. Hope it landed in Bangladesh, and not surprisingly, it never came back. Um, and so I finally found my way into an organization that sent me to the Ivory Coast. Um, my first experience in microfinance was a disaster, partially because I came in thinking I was going to change the world, the African continent, and they didn't uh, think that my 25-year-old skill set uh, was quite ready 
um, for that task. And so feeling like a failure, I ended up in Rwanda through this long uh, road. But in Rwanda, I saw that a small group of people really could change the world when I started the first microfinance bank there. And that was the beginning. Like, you can do this even if you don't have the yeah. requisite skills because you build them along the way. Yeah, interesting. And then what led you ultimately to Acumen? I mean, it seemed like it was the lessons from that work in development and from your experience in banking and then from some experience in philanthropy as well that just all came together to, to lead you to launch this. Yeah, when I look at social entrepreneurs and the people we invest in, Increasingly, I think that there's an apprentice apprenticeship that people go through. You had yours while you were on the job. Yeah. Um, mine did start in banking where I learned the skills of building companies. And then Rwanda really looked to help me understand the complexity of the markets in which the poor actually have to live. Um, what I learned from both those experiences was that markets too, over, too often overlook the poor and charity and aid too often uh, oppresses or creates dependence. And that in the middle is this opportunity for human dignity, which is choice, opportunity. And that the only way to get that is to move away from these old paradigms that we do business any way we can to make profit so then we can do good works. But there's got to be a more of an integration. And, um, and so started Acumen with this idea that Business had incredible tools, but it was just a tool. Mm -hmm. And philanthropy should be enormous risk capital, and yet it's where you see people taking the least amount of risk. Mm -hmm. If we could find those daring souls to merge them, could we create real change? Yeah. And that was the beginning of Acumen. Mm -hmm. And tell us more about, about the kind of theory of Acumen and, and what it does exactly, and sort of how it's, yeah, where it is now. So. You know, we started with the modest goal of changing the way the world tackles poverty altogether, that, and that continues to be our mission and our goal. Mm. The, the core at the beginning in 2001 was that we needed a different kind of capital that we call patient capital, and that if we could take philanthropy and invest in entrepreneurs that were going where markets and government had failed the poor, basic services, education, mm. healthcare, energy, agriculture, and we stayed with those entrepreneurs for as long as it took 10, 12 years, you could actually disrupt entire systems that were broken. Um, two of our best examples of that are um, the ambulance industry in India, where in 2006, if you wanted to take an ambulance to hospital, you called a taxi. You only really called an ambulance to take your loved one to the morgue. 90% of people in ambulances were dead at the time. So we have a social entrepreneur that comes in and says, I've got this solution to an ethical, efficient ambulance system that is modeled on the West for India, which is, you know, detail, a billion-dollar, corrupt, broken, bureaucratic system. We bought 30% of his company. It's been 10 years, but this is a company now that has 1,250 ambulances, 6,000 employees and has taken three and a half million people to hospital over the last year. It serves about 300 million people across India. So you've busted open this whole system. Mm -hmm. That was the dream, and now we're starting to see that with solar lighting, where one of our companies has reached 50 million people yeah. in sustainable ways. Mm -hmm. What we learned halfway as we went along, though, was that capital wasn't enough. And that's where the leadership story began, both at the global level and then regionally. And now our theory of change has actually evolved to recognize that you need to invest in companies. You also need to invest in leaders. And then if you really care about making change, and this is very much what you have learned, then you need to spread ideas as well. Um, sometimes just to share those ideas, sometimes to fight to enable those ideas to take root. And um, so we've, we've, mo we've mirrored each other in those ways. Um, and, and so like the ambulance organization is a company. It's not Almost a, everything we do is for-profit company, invest yeah. in for-profit companies. Yeah. So it's so fascinating. And because this is why I was really struck a few years ago for when you started talking about all this leadership development work, because I just thought, I didn't know you did that. I thought you did, you know, kind of venture capital for, I mean, with a social mindset, et cetera. But so it's so interesting that that brought you to such a focus on leadership development. 
Well, I think you only have to look around the world to see the paucity of leaders um, who understand these complexities, particularly when it comes to working with the poor. Yeah. And that we, I feel even more so today that the, that for-profit business models enables you to understand how the poor make decisions. But that most of the success stories, and this is the complex part of the story that I think you all understand more than most, is that the only way these really hit scale and the only way they have real equity is if they partner with government or have major philanthropic components, hybrids. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for people to hold because you're actually asking them to hold opposing ideas simultaneously. That is, to me, the hallmark of what great leadership is. And that's why it all comes back to leadership for us. Yeah. And so how have you, um, I mean, first of all, do you feel like everyone thinks the way you do on that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think that millennials see the world much more like that. Yeah. Um, that millennials are um, recognizing that there's opportunity for a sharing economy, for mesh economy. Yeah. That when, we, when I look at the new kinds of organizations and companies, there seems to be so much more fluidity in the way that you all look at the world, um, the way you volunteer your time. Uh, yeah is extraordinary to me. The way you see what legitimate careers are, whereas in my generation that was seen as um, what the do-gooders did. I think that's gone now um, for a large group of young people who are emerging as the leaders that others want to be like. It's um, just so our generation sees it in a bifurcated way. Because even on this topic of leadership, I think we feel in education that we are, you know, trying to help people come to the idea that leadership is really the core of the solution. Um, I mean, we'd love to be able to solve this in other ways, like maybe we could give every kid a computer, or we could do to change policy or do many other things, but really taking an intentional approach to cultivating the leaders we need in, in like vast quantities at a local level we don't see the path to transformational change without doing that. And that message seems like it hasn't yet seen its prime. Like it seems like maybe we're a little bit ahead of our time on that. And I just wonder in your, you know, kind of a slightly different realm, if you feel like you've gained traction with that notion. Well, in, I would say yes, but frankly, I would put ourselves standing on on your shoulders, I mean, you have 75,000 leaders around the world. That's starting to get significant traction. Yeah. I think the reason that the story of leadership writ large is harder is because change is hard. And the kinds of leaders that you all are aspiring to be um, recognizes that this is for the long haul that it's, you're going against a status quo that doesn't change for very good reason. And that's a hard thing to ask people to sign up for. That's so true. On the funding side, it's hard because people want quick results. And what we're talking about are 10, 20-year journeys. Yeah. Um, and yet, I think part of the story has to be that actually 10 years is nothing yeah. if you are looking at a completely disrupted system. And that if you, if you use the tools and the character building of leadership, that this becomes exponential in the way that people are changed. There's nothing more exponential than education. I visited, actually, um, Lewitt, who's one of the um, Teach for India fellows who became an Acumen fellow, who's now in Pune, and he's working to bring a new way of learning into the school system. And I was sitting in his class, and um, he had values written around the room. And every month, the kids have a different value that they hold. And this month was um, generosity. And I was sitting next to the smart aleck kid of the class, um, who was really trying to impress me with you know, everything he did. He was so adorable. And, um, and I said, give me your journal. I want to see your journal. And so I just grabbed his journal, really expecting fairly um, not much just given how smart alecky he was. And there was this page where he said, 
For me, generosity um, is my father. Because when my father um, was young, his dream was to be a singer. And then he had me. And he realized that for me to have my dreams, he had to be a contractor. Hmm. And I thought, OK, this kid is yeah. being taught character. So then you think, yeah. you start multiplying that. So I think we're on our way. Because frankly, look at the leadership models that yeah. we're having to read about every day in the news. Yeah. I think there's a yearning for something different. So, and, and so tell us more about how you all have approached leadership development. Um, the, we started, when we, when we were building these companies and we realized that um, the companies needed more than capital, they needed talent. That was really the beginning. Um, we decided to go out into the world and see, could we find this incredible talent that also was ready to take this on for the long term? Mm -hmm. And our goal was not just to support our companies. Our goal was to seed a, a community of leaders that would then go on and be the architects of, at that point, the social impact space. Now I dare say it's more the social enterprise space. Mm -hmm. And so um, we would just use email, essentially. And we have 12 fellows a year. And we'd get applications from 140 countries, usually 1,000 applications. So that really showed that there was this hunger. Um, the, the program was then about the three areas that we felt were really key to leadership at the time, financial operational skills so they could actually offer quick value to the companies, but then what we call the moral imagination. Can you put yourself in another person's shoes? and build, company, build solutions from their perspective. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest piece of this. Yeah. Um, over time, we saw that that was really working, that we were seeing real architects. We've got one here, Benji Williams, who um, we put him in a water company in Lahore, Pakistan. So dealing cross race, cross class, cross um, religion, cross culture, for a year to add management value um, can really change a person. Um, after Pakistan, he went to Stanford Business School and then decided um, in a somewhat counterintuitive way that he would go back to Pakistan and take this apprenticeship that he had built to build a essentially a vocational training and fellowship program for tertiary level students um, coming out of colleges that weren't getting jobs. Um, and now he's training hundreds of young Pakistanis who are too often invisible to bring that out. And so that showed us the power of the global. But over time, Wendy, we saw that in each of the areas in which we work, mm -hmm. there was even a greater dearth. And so could we identify leaders across class, ethnicity, culture, and try to give them the tools to know each other and to be, become a cohort. Yeah. And now we've got 20 fellows in Pakistan a year, 20 fellows in India a year, 20 fellows in East Africa. And then they become connected to the whole group. Mm -hmm. um, because there's such a need for this and a yearning for this, we then um, got a lot of pressure from people who didn't get into the programs. Could you put some of this training on? Line. And so we started these plus acumen courses um, that now 270,000 people have signed up for. Amazing. And that's been, okay, if you can't get scale on the one by one, and I think that also is an indicator that people are searching for tools that are not just um, the rudiments and the technical tools, yeah. but the character building uh, tools that are needed. I mean, just to pause and say, we were talking about how all the very practical connections between our work and all those regional fellows programs where we also have a presence. I mean, our folks could be a pipeline into your Acumen Fellowship. And I think we're all are a pipeline. And are a pipeline, yes. They're already, you said five. Five have been Acumen in Fellows in India. Um, and, and there's probably more possibility out there. And the online offerings, I know we're already really tapping into those, so thank you for those. What would you say, you know, if you had to say, you know, I'm sure this has been a learning journey just in terms of the leadership development piece, like what does it actually take to develop leaders? And I wonder if you can say a bit about kind of what you've learned is most 
I'm sure it's many things that are most crucial, but um, you know, what do you feel are some of the most central learnings there around what really matters in leadership development? Sure. And again, I think, I actually don't think it was naivete because I had not only lived in, worked in Rwanda, but then so I um, experienced, not firsthand, but had worked for um, years before the, the genocide. So um, there was a lot in my life that could have made me cynical uh, rather than even more hopeful. Um, yet I really underestimated what it meant to work in these basic services, the level of complacency and corruption, uh, what the status quo was. So when I think about what we need to develop in ourselves um, as, for, as moral leadership, the kind of skills we need to develop, I think it starts with the moral imagination that is too often lacking. And certainly when you look at some of the presidential um, statements, uh, they could serve, they could use a little of this training. Um, then it goes to, um, connected to that is identity. I think we need to really build skills of understanding not only how other people see themselves, how we see them, and how we see them also impacts how they see themselves, mm -hmm. so that we can actually be much better at building solutions. The third is this audacity idea, that too often people who want to change the world think small. They talk big, but they actually think and act small. And I think that part of it is that they're afraid to think big, because it's more comfortable to think small. So can you actually build a skill set and a, and a confidence building and a permission building around audacity? Shafi Mather wanted to change the ambulance system. He didn't want to build a nice company that got him wealthy. Yeah. Um, then connected to that, I would say, is, is courage. Not only the courage then to back up the way that you're thinking, but also to stay, to stay the course mm -hmm. and to say the things out loud that nobody else will say. Mm -hmm. That a lot of the leadership that we need in the world comes at a price. We've both paid that price. Whether it's losing a big donor or whether in some cases it's losing, potentially losing your life for mm -hmm. saying things out loud that nobody else will say. How do you build that moral courage? And I actually think that's where it's connected to building a posse of people that will both support you and push you. Um, finally, the grit, well not finally, the grit and persistence. What keeps you going? What sustains you? That's also connected to Posse. Mario, I see, is another fellow here. These guys are in this for the long term. How do you build not only the skills, but the support systems? Mm -hmm. And then finally, I don't think we talk enough about faith and belief. Certainly in the United States where it's so hot, um, but that if you don't believe that you can make the world better, it's not going to be better. Yeah. What are those rituals? What are those practices? They do not have to be religious. Um, most of the people that we work with are ambivalent. Mm -hmm. But what are the practices that enable them and, the, and therefore turn into tools to help them create change? Yeah. Well, actually, there's a beautiful question here, I'm gonna, which is very, you know, falls along the lines of what you were just saying, and that was such a beautiful answer. But Kareem um, from New York is asking, confidence is at the core of leadership and grit, which are needed for the long haul. How do you build confidence? I think you, again, I think it's partially the idea of the posse. I think it's also um, giving people the courage to just start to help them understand that um, failure is actually part of success. And that if you are not willing to fail, you will not succeed. And then actually following that up by celebrating mm -hmm. the failures, which is really hard to do. We, like you, work in so many cultures where failure is not allowed. And so can we talk about it? Can we build it? Yeah. Um, I think it's part of what we as leadership programs need to do a better job yeah. of um, and so I think that those are the pieces, but there's no better way to learn than to start, and there's no better way to gain confidence, inc including the confidence of moral courage, than to start. I'll often use the example that public speaking used to be the one thing that terrified me more than anything in the whole world. And so for a three-minute talk, I would sometimes practice the whole night. Um, but, you know, you do it enough, 
and you get more confident, and you get more courage. And um, I think that that's a big piece of confidence. Just do something that scares you every day if you can. But every month, you must. Something. And that is where you start to build. Um, how have you sustained yourself in this? As you say, like over, you've been going at this for what? 30. 30 years. Three. 33 years. <laughs> 33 years. Um, well, there's no work I would rather do in my whole life. I feel like um, the older I get, the easier it gets to sustain because the more conscious I am of how short life is. And um, if anything, Wendy, I feel like um, I don't have enough time to do everything I want to do. And that's really humbling. So um, one is to remind myself of the privilege of, that we get to do this work. We get to see the humanity that exists in this world every single day if we let it, and therefore find the humanity in ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and on those days that you just want to scratch your eyes out because you are so frustrated, and you feel that people have made you small, um, made you feel unworthy, dirty. Um, I go for a really long run. Um, and, and, uh, and I find beauty. Beauty is a really big uh, gift to me. Um, and kind of brings me back to like, OK, yeah. Yeah. this isn't about you. This is about, yeah. frankly, them. Beautiful. Um, here's a question from, from Rose Thompson from the UK who's asking that you mentioned that you can learn skills on the job. So like, what are the skills needed to get a job at Acumen? <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, uh, clearly. <laughs> no. um, I think one of the big skills is, um, well, certainly you have to be able to tell a story about yourself. Now, why are you there? And if that story is, I hear this is a really good way to get into business school, you're not going to get into Acura. <laughs> um, and trust me, I've, I've actually been told that yeah. um, by really incredible people that don't get the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for, for me, it's, uh, can you dare to tell the truth about yourself? If we ask you what scares you or what you failed at, give us a real answer. Um, then there's the, the, the hardcore pragmatic piece um, that if you want to join the portfolio team, you really need to have helped build companies, worked operationally at a company, or have an MBA, um, usually all of the above. Mm -hmm. We tend to hire older, um, except for really um, entry positions mm -hmm. that uh, often require people to take very non-traditional uh, roles, like being my assistant. Um, that we, I've got a policy of you're in for two years, and then if you're a superstar, that we find you something. Yeah. And some of the people who now run Acumen started there. Um, so I would say it's a lot of what we're looking for um, character-wise yeah. in our leadership programs. And then we need the skills. Yeah. If you're on the finance team, you need yeah. people. We're a big, we're, we have a $100 million fund yeah. in 11 countries. Um, so there's a mix of significant skills that are technical skills and then the character piece. I want to ask um, at least one more question on, this, on the leadership topic, but you all live should feel free to pipe in with questions as well. Um, when you think about what experiences you're seeing to be the most impactful for the fellows, um, like the actual interventions. Um, I mean, what have you found, like, what would you, what do you feel like we've really landed on something here and it's, you know, truly transformational for these folks? Do you feel like you're, you've come to real insights around, like, what truly works in, in actually transforming these folks into the kind of transformational leaders you want them to be? Um, I'm actually doing a lot of thinking about that. 
right now. So it's been really fun to kind of go through and think back over 10 years. Um, the, for the Global Fellows, clearly, living in a place like rural Bihar and working, um, trying to gasify rice husk and turn it into electricity and sell it to poor villagers can really teach you a lot about the human journey and about trying to sell something that nobody wants to buy and can afford. Um, so operationally, as well as from a grit perspective, that is a, it's something that you'll have for your whole life. No one will take away that experience. Um, apart from that, I would say the, and it's hard for me because I've got two fellows here, so I'd love to hear from them, but so you guys can raise your hand if I'm yeah. like totally missing. But um, I would say that we do something that I selfishly still do the most of the, the moderating of, um, called Good Society, which is, um, stands on Aspen's mm -hmm. shoulders, um, where we choose a series of readings, uh, often fundamental readings of Aristotle and King, but also for Acumen, Achebe and Gandhi, and um, uh, uh, Khaldun, who was this great Tunisian mathematician philosopher. And we use these, these, these readings as springboards into conversation about our own values, each other's values, mm -hmm. and the trade-offs that we have to make as a world. Because a lot of the leadership that really matters, I've yep. skirted around, is navigating the gray. That to mm. make real change, there is compromise. There is moral compromise. Mm. And these leaders throughout history have had to make them, where do we sit with them? And can we forgive them for the context in their own era? Mm -hmm. And what are the conceits of our era that may be our blind spots? Yeah. Those are those are very powerful conversation. And mm -hmm. when they really work, King and Gandhi and Mandela and um, mm -hmm. Khaldun and others become lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. And there's a universal language that the fellows have. Yeah. The third piece is what's called um, adaptive leadership, which came out of Ron Heifetz. Harvard, which is really uncomfortable. And I think that if you're going to make change, you've got to be willing to get really uncomfortable. Um, we make ourselves do it sometimes. It's not fun often. Um, but it's essentially where the, it's, a, it's a way of leading, of, of teaching leadership that puts you to the wall with each other and where you call each other out on the things that you're hiding behind and um, your tics and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it kind of strips you down. It, it could, be, it could feel like the antithesis of confidence building yeah. while you're in it, but then it allows you to have a much clearer sense of yourself so you can have a better sense yeah. of others. Yeah. I would say that those are three of the, the things. And then building this cohort with this idea, like you do, that it is for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, we call ourselves the Hotel California in that way. You know? yeah. Once you're in, you're never out. <laughs> Great. That's beautiful. Um, I have more questions here. Any any here? Yeah. Thank you, Matt from Teach for All. And a question for both of you, really. Um, earlier on, you were talking about sort of that leadership is, I mean, we're in the earlier stages of kind of realization that leadership is just core to solutions to the biggest problems. So my question is, what are the major obstacles to a broader realization, you know, that it is core? Who are the stakeholders that uh, should be engaged to overcome those obstacles? That yeah, I mean, I think, Matt, I think that the word you used of stakeholders is the, the, the key piece here. That the world has even changed since I started Acumen, which, which was you know, six months before 9-11. Um, we have become so interconnected as a world we have technology that is an enabler and also has created incredible inequality. We're seeing this fear that's race baiting and ethnicity bait, you know, on and on. That um, the only way we're going to move forward is to take a stakeholder model and not a shareholder model of how we organize ourselves. That you know, some of the words that I look at, the way I think about it is that we've got to move from a, a, a comfortable separation whether it's tribe or geography or um, name, pick, pick your pot, to integration across the board. So we need to find those leaders 
either in business or in government or in civil society that are willing to see the world in that same way, of integration. And I think that they exist in every sector. Um, I grew up in an era where if you were in the nonprofit sector, it was really, it felt really good to talk about how greedy and corrupt most business people were. And most business people felt really comfortable talking about the nonprofits not being able to manage themselves out of shoeboxes. That reality has fully changed, at least for those people who are at the cutting edge of real change. So I think it's to all of us to find those leaders, and I would include religious leaders as well, who are daring to transcend. So Paul Pullman in the corporate sector, who was saying that I need to make Unilever more like a nonprofit and yet still create a return to my shareholders. So that we create, you know, I sell two billion products a day. If I'm not concerned about my environmental footprint, then I'm part of the problem, not the solution. You've got nonprofit leaders who are saying, if I can't find a way to sustain myself and really build, I'm not going to matter enough. You've got the Pope who can speak on behalf of Catholics, but at the same time, he's speaking on behalf of all of us, including atheists. These are the daring moral leaders that we need to find and, and celebrate mm. instead of just our rich guys or our guys that win debates because they are the cleverest. And that's where I think we need to be more aggressive and find ways to collaborate. I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I interpreted that question in part as being about like, because one of our struggles here at Teach for All is that we feel like, I mean, our topic, our thing that we're obsessed about, I don't know that it has ever been on an education conference agenda, right? Like, we're trying to create a space for this to generate resources, attention, policy change around this idea that if we're not making a much more intentional, taking a much more intentional approach to cultivating leadership capacity, we will never get there. This is a foreign idea, and I think what we're hearing is this is not a foreign idea. In the realm of social enterprise and, and the private sector, I think there is more of an embrace that leadership is crucial and we need to make a real investment in cultivating it. So I think we could... Not only that, but I was recently interviewed by a guy that um, helped right over here on 30 Pine Street, which is where I got trained mm. as a baby banker, um, that, the, um, that the corporate sector spends billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on leadership training. And they're asking themselves, so what? Where are the leaders? And when you look at the financial crisis, we had yeah. people who said, Look, I never broke the law. But none of them said, but did I do what was right? Yeah. And so corporations are now looking at ways of developing leaders within themselves. Mm -hmm. And because Acumen builds companies, they come to us increasingly um, to say, one, can we partner with you because we want more people like your fellows to work with us, and I say, you know, with all respect for how much it costs us to, you know, train a fellow, the goal is not for have, to have them to work at a major multinational. However, yeah. it's really opening conversations, you know, ideas and conversations around yeah. where is their opportunity to learn from each other, to collaborate, yeah. to create new kinds of programs. So I think there's a real hunger that you may not feel as much because it's not an, they don't immediately think of education even though yeah. the Teach for All Fellows that I meet, are, they're the same DNA. Yeah. And I think it's also an education world thing. Like the policy folks, the people who are in and around this issue, it's just not yet. Although I think we're on the, I think we're just only a tiny bit ahead of our time. Like, I, I think the world is, I think they're going to get there. But I think it's just a different language in, in this little sector that we're operating in, maybe. Um, little, enormous sector, right? Yeah, little, like, understatement. Okay. Um, did I see another? Yes. I was wondering if you could say anything about the idea of collective leadership, because that's something we think about. Like, of course, there's these like amazing individuals who go in these situations and start these, but they're not doing it on alone. And the idea of like the importance of partnering 
with the communities where they're working or others or and sort of how that is infused, if it is infused in your, um, your whole philosophy. I'm so glad that you asked, asked that question because um, one of my worries, and I think acumen sometimes um, is interpreted as being the paragon for that worry, is that we are so, um, we're such a celebrity culture that we take the social entrepreneur and we put her on a pedestal and forget that the only way anybody builds anything is collectively with a real team. So I even want to start before we get to then different organizations working together, that we've got to reframe the kind of leadership that we're building. And, and part of that is, can you gain enough self-knowledge to understand what is your gift? And it may be your gift is to do code, or your gift is to um, be an operator versus an entrepreneur. And we've got to work better together and to celebrate the different skill sets that are, and personalities, frankly, that are needed. Mm -hmm. Then I do believe that there is um, huge opportunity for, as you say, collective leadership. And one of the things that I'm really proud of, we're at the early stages of this, but um, it's becoming a major piece of Acumen's work is partnership. And so we've got a significant partnership with Unilever. And it is, it is stretching Unilever, and it is stretching Acumen in, and is in ways that I don't think anybody, any of us really understood when we started. And it's so exciting to see that we understand how these markets for the poor work. Unilever has unbelievable scale. Mm. If you can influence their supply chain, we've made enormous change in the world. Yeah. And so we are really moving that forward. Now this goes back to leadership because we've literally lost hundreds of thousands if not a million dollars recently from someone who said, you know, you take money from these big corporations. Doesn't that make you feel dirty? And I said, no, frankly, it doesn't because we're looking at individual leaders and organizations that are trying to change. If we do not engage, we will not make change. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that, I think the conversation has to, to yeah. shift in that way. Yeah. And there's a whole other conversation about working with community that I've been talking too much on this. So. Yeah, no. Good morning. My name is Kareem Abulnag. I'm the founder and CEO of Practice Makes Perfect. Um, we're actually at the tail end of becoming a, a public benefit corporation. Right. And earlier you mentioned that millennials are starting to see the world like you did, but you didn't touch on how your peers see the world um, from that perspective. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how you all see the world, your peers. My, my peers being? With regards to how they see the social enterprise. People as old as me or people who like? <laughs> said millennials get it. Like said, <laughs> your generation of guys. folks who, who may or may not see the world in the way that it's moving, right? This solve a pain point and address a critical problem, and that's the juncture of social enterprises. Um, I think it's always hard to, after I've generalized your generation, I think it's always hard to fully generalize. Um, that, uh, like, like I said before, I think there's a lot of people my age who see the world as more divided um, and um, in many ways are fearful of this new crazy world that is starting. Um, that said, I rarely meet anyone in my generation who doesn't feel that your generation is the best generation that has ever come into being. Um, and that's the real opportunity that you all have. Because when I have um, private conversations with CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, they will say, we have to change. You know, I know it's right to change. But if we don't change, we're not going to be able to hire anybody. Mm -hmm. And we have a generation that increasingly, especially for a frontline organization, a consumer-facing organization, these guys now understand what's happening. And so there's enormous power that you all have. And, um, and so I, I would think strategically about how to start partnering to make those shifts um, and bring them along with you. 
I'm going to close us out with a question or, or two along a slightly different line, which is just, just thinking about the fact that you've been fighting the challenge of poverty essentially for three decades. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, one thing that I've come to feel like is once you really get, and, and I think it was Mohammed Yunus who said, you know, we can end poverty. And it resonated so much because I think in our work, we realize like when you get really close to this issue, you realize we could solve this problem. Like actually this is a solvable problem. Um, and yet it's a long, long journey. And, and I guess I just wonder like, what's your current perspective on this? Like, do you think, what's the path to solving poverty? I know that's just a ridiculous question, but how do you think about that path? Like, do you actually think in our lifetime we could make it happen? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? I think in our lifetime we can solve poverty. Um, so many of the questions that you all are asking are connected to how we do it, which is to create a new ethos. That is really hard to do. Mm. Um, uh, but I think that we as a world collectively are starting to understand that we are part of each other, that our actions impact each other, whether we like it or not, and that in a way, we're going through a period of extraordinary turbulence. This is a moment of incredible peril. Um, but it's also a time of unprecedented opportunity like the world has never seen before, ever in history. Your generation, which is a huge generation, understands that somewhere. And so for me, it is leadership that says, what are the new models? Because low-income people all around the world already have cell phones. And pretty soon, those cell phones are going to be smartphones. In Kenya already, 70% of people have cell phones, and 70% of those are smartphones. So the amount of knowledge and understanding, and therefore rage if things don't change, is all there. And so I think it's finding these solutions and then really driving them, and that's where the collective piece comes in as well. So just what, what things that give me hope would be like when back again to 2006, which was clearly a big year for innovation, we inve invested in these two guys who started a company called D-Light, which was a solar torch. Back then, never going to happen. Solar's never going to work. Uh, $4 a watt, the poor didn't want it. I could give you a million reasons why solar was going to fail. Not only has D-Light brought it to 50 million people, but the world, but so solar's now below a dollar a watt. Um, you can now imagine, because of cell phone banking, where people can now pay for their energy through their phone every single day. So you're, you're dealing with them, the fact that the poor don't have cash in hand up front, take little tiny, tiny bits. Um, you can have a revolution. Africa is a continent that is at this critical moment because 80% of the, con the continent of a billion people live with no electricity, no grid. So we can either go the way we're going, which is government saying, well, if we build the grid, then we're going to be like the West, and the I'll have control, and therefore there's lots of room for corruption and power. Or we can say, there is a, there is a future for the world that is fully off-grid, where people have their own control, that is affordable to every person on this planet, and we can make that happen. It's these kinds of visions that I think we can start to get behind, that need our technology, need our, our, our different kind of capital, need the entrepreneurs, but mostly need the ethos of a moral leadership that says, our job is to do it the way that will solve it, yeah. not to stick in our petty little boxes yeah. and fight for making ourselves feel good or rich or powerful. And all I can think of as you talk through all that is how like the really long game to truly solving that, to having a whole generation of moral leaders is to figure out for all of our kids, I mean the kids we're reaching, the kids all around the world, like what kind of education we're giving them. Yeah. Because 
we are far from ensuring that our kids are coming out with the kind of education that really equips them to be the moral leaders we, we need. But we're in such an incredible position to be able to have a global conversation about what we believe an excellent education really is with the vantage point of like, what's the world we're trying to create, you know? And if every TFA fellow, every Acumen fellow, every Ashoka fellow really held this idea that we may not be able to change the world overnight, we can change ourselves, and that we can stand for a community that is bound to each other by the values that we share and by a world vision that we hold. And we can model that for the world. Mm -hmm. That becomes very powerful as another way of being. And, um, and I dare say one that ultimately leads to meaning and happiness and purpose. And that's what we're seeing people at every level of society in every country I have ever been to. I've been to a lot. Yeah. Um, that is the, that's yeah. the dream. Yeah, totally. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. I mean, I'm leaving this all the more clear that we need to learn so much more about your approach to leadership development. I think we started in a slightly different place, like thinking about kind of the fact is teaching is an act of leadership. And so all of our leadership development work is so rooted in classrooms and such. And I just think there's probably such a power to coming at it from a totally different perspective. So much more discussion to be had, but thank you well, so much for making time for and this. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. For more information about Teach for All, visit teachforall.org.